invite you to take a seat this morning, and as Jimmy read for us in Acts 5, that's our text this morning where we'll be at, and we've been walking through Acts ever since the beginning of the year, and, and really asking the Lord, Lord, help us to, to truly be witnesses of Jesus Christ, and really looking at what that means over the last few weeks, and this morning we, we see the ongoing influence of the church, and, and that you and I as the body of Christ, God's people, his sons and daughters, that you and I, we have been called to be an influence in our culture. And it bids us to ask the question this morning, what kind of influence do I have? And specifically, what kind of influence do I have for the kingdom, for Jesus? And so it asks, what is our influence pointing to? Because if we're all aware of this this morning and honest with ourselves, we are influencers of something. Uh, We're influencing other people. The question is, is what is is our influence pointing to? Are we in pointing, or excuse me, are we influencing people for Christ? And the church in Jerusalem started small, but their influence was great. God started a movement that was big and unstoppable, as we'll see this morning, literally filling the city with the message of Jesus, which brought honor and glory to God. And that's what God wants to do with us. So this morning, I want us to look at this text really in in three ways this morning. I I want us to see this this powerful influence that that the church had, and then I want us to see the price of this influence, because an influence for, for Christ will be costly. There is a price to be paid. And then third and lastly, I want us to see that the purpose of this Spirit-empowered influence. And so look at the text, if you would, with me. In, in verse 12 in chapter 5, look at what Luke writes for us about this first century church. He says, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. They were all f- with one accord in Solomon's portico. So the church was meeting together, they were in unity, and God was doing these amazing miracles among them. We know of one in particular, the lame man that that now can walk. After 40 years of not being able to, now he can. And, And what have we seen over the last few weeks? We've seen a church that is desperate for the power of God. And we just sung a, a, a song stating that. God, we're waiting here for you. We, we, we long for, for more of you, your presence, your power among us. And they prayed in Acts 4. Do you remember in 29 and, and 30? They asked the Lord this, Lord, take note of the threats and grant your bondservants the witness, the speaking of your word with all confidence and boldness while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What did they want? They wanted God's power. They wanted God's power to move. And guess what? It's happening. God is answering their prayers. They desired for God to move in accordance to what Jesus had promised. Remember Jesus said in Acts 1.18, He says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. 
the Holy Spirit had come upon the apostles, had come upon the church, filling them, empowering them to be witnesses of Jesus. And God had given them great power. We've seen that in their teaching. We've seen that through miracles and signs and wonders that God has been doing through them. And we've seen it even last week through their love. Remember the Bible says in John 13, 35, that how will they know that you are my disciples? By the love that you share for one another. And so the power of God has been displayed through these things. God has been answering their prayers, giving them abundant grace, enabling them to be the witnesses of Jesus in works and in words. And I want us to think about this this morning. We live in this age. We live in the age of Acts 1-8, where Jesus says, I will give you your Holy Spirit, your my power will be upon you. This isn't something for yesterday. This is something for today. This isn't something just for first century. This is something for 2016. And Jesus is still moving and working and wants us to be the spirit-empowered influence just as the first century church. And so as we step back this morning, are we asking God for such an influence? Are we asking God for his power like the church is here? Are we desperate for it? I gotta be honest with you, it's very easy to be preoccupied with the things of this world. What Jesus shared in the parable with the weeds and the thorns and the soil is so tempting <laughs> to, to wonder, to prone to wonder as we sung last week. It's still sticking with me this week. It, it's so easy to to drift into the things of this world and be preoccupied with busyness of the things of this world and, and, and lose sight of why we're here. And, and I think we get a little taste this morning. What are we desperate for? Are we desperate for the power of God or do we just settle for what man can do? And do we just settle for, hey, <laughs> I'm a Christian, but I'm just going to just live and just kind of let life just kind of flow on? Or is there purpose? Is there meaning? And so the church has experienced this great power. They asked for it. They prayed for it. And then look what happens in verse 13 through 14. It says, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Their influence was received by some, but not all. In fact, the unbelieving Jews, those who did not want to associate with them, partly because they were afraid of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and, and, and all that, but, but mainly because they didn't believe. But yet, they held them in high respect. Why? Because they noted that, hey, listen, there's a guy who couldn't walk. Now he can walk, and, and there's other miracles happening. So there was this respect for them, yet... There were many who would not associate with them, but at the same time, there was many who did believe. But there's something I want us to notice here as we look at this text. God used teaching. God used other things as well. He used miracles and signs and wonders. He used the love of the church to draw people to saving faith. But specifically here, what is God doing? Look at verse 15 and 16. To such an extent, he was adding to their number those who were being believed, and then it says, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets 
and laid them in cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. It's a very interesting thing here, that God was using miracles, these these outward external miracles, these signs and wonders of healings, not just one lame man, but, but many were told here, to shatter the disinterest of people so that they could taste and see the goodness of God. And an amazing scene here of, of the, the power of God that the apostles prayed for this, and here God is granting it to them. I don't want us to think that we're ever outside the window of this in the age we live in. God is still doing signs and wonders and miracles among us. But, but what's different here with this culture and the society we hear, they are a broken people. They are a broken people who long for the Spirit of God to move and to work. And they're not looking for what man can do and what man can build, but they're looking for what Jesus can do and what Jesus wants to build. That's what they're looking for. That's what they desire and God's doing that. It's very interesting that it says right here, they, they were just wanting to, uh, what, in verse 15, uh, at least allow Peter's shadow to fall on them. I mean, let's not just get away from that and think, wow, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? And I love what Luke does. In his writings, in two different places, we find this idea of the overshadowing of God. In, in Luke 1, I believe verse 36, where it talks about the incarnation. You remember, the, it, it tells us that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary so that she would conceive in her Jesus. And then also in Luke 9, we're told in the transfiguration with Peter, John, and James that they were overshadowed by a, a cloud. And, and, and the context there goes back to the Old Testament of Moses where the presence of God is that cloud, that representation of God. And so this idea of overshadowing, and I would even say here, Luke's word in, in reference to this here with Peter, is the idea of the presence of God. The God is doing the healing, not Peter, Right? And so what we see here is the presence of God in the church, moving, doing signs and wonders, changing lives, bringing people to saving faith. That's what the church longed for. That's what they wanted because they knew that's what the church was, the fullness of God. A powerful influence. But a powerful influence only comes for the kingdom with the presence of God. And then look at verse 17. Such an influence is costly. Costly for this church. Look what happens. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were all filled with jealousy. There were those who were impacted with the influence of the church for the glory of God, obviously. But there were others, the religious leaders in particular, who were filled with jealousy. And you had two uh, sects, two groups in particular, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The, The difference between the two were that the Sadducees did not believe in any sort of resurrection. The Pharisees did. And so there were even tension between those two groups. But both of them were annoyed despised and rejected Christians. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. 
And specifically here, we see that jealousy filled their hearts. It's interesting, Luke, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that the apostles were filled with what? The Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 were filled with what? He says, your hearts were filled with Satan, Peter says that. And here, these leaders are filled with jealousy. Jealousy is that anger, that resentment of someone having something that you don't have. And you don't want them to have that. Because you don't have it. And these leaders recognize here that these miracles are happening, these great acts of God are happening, and they aren't seeing that. There's a movement. There's people following these apostles and the movement of Jesus Christ, and they're not seeing that. And so what rises up through the lens of of the leaders is a rivalry that comes forth from this jealousy, and they're boiling up with envy. The root of their jealousy is what? At the heart of the issue was their faithlessness, their lovelessness. They were believing in a false teaching. The religious leaders had accused the apostles, the church, of believing in a false doctrine because they believed in the resurrection that Jesus raised from the dead and that those who believe in him also will experience resurrection as well. But the Sadducees were annoyed by this. They didn't believe in the resurrection whatsoever. And so since they had the power to act, remember a few weeks ago, they said to Peter and John, if you speak again in the name of Jesus Christ, we will deal with you. And then look at what happens in verse 18. They follow through. They laid hands on the apostles. They put them in public jail. And so what do we learn here? That following Jesus Christ is Costly. It may mean prison. In Acts 7, it may mean being stoned like Stephen. In Acts chapter 12, it may mean like James who will die by the sword at the hands of King Herod. But this is part of God's sovereign will, his sovereign plan. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples when he was here on earth in Luke 21, verse 12. He says, before all these things will happen, speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, he says, they will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you, deliver you to the synagogues, prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake. We've seen that. Verse 13, it will lead to an opportunity, though, for your testimony. So make up your minds, Jesus tells the disciples, not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute, but you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, friends, and they will put some of you even to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. But listen to verse 18. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. Not a hair of your head will perish, meaning you might die, but you will live when you die. An eternal life forever. Just as God gives the apostles and the church great power to minister by his abundant grace, he will also give his followers great power by his abundant grace to suffer and even to die for him. But for the apostles here, it wasn't time for death yet. Obviously, some will face it. James will face it shortly. But as verse 19 tells us, look what happens. They're in prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out. He takes 
them out. Before we continue to look at what the angel said to them, this is one of the, the first of three miracles where an angel will come and open the doors of the prison and release apostles. Now, this doesn't happen all the time. Release from suffering and incidents like this doesn't happen. But on this occasion, God's power through this angel, through his messenger, causes the release of the apostles. And God can do this. And times he does that, but there are also times where he allows us to suffer, to face the stoning, and to go to the sword. And I want us to think about that this morning. In those instances, whether it's release from suffering or whether it's facing suffering and even pressure, what's the purpose in those times? What's the purpose of the price of our influence? What is our influence pointing to in times even of opposition? So look at verse 20 because the angel tells them. He says, go now, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And so they did. They entered into the temple about daybreak and began to preach. The purpose of God taking them out of the distress of prison, even allowing um, others to stay in prison in other instances and to be stoned like Stephen and even to go to the sword like James. What's the purpose? That they would share the message of life. That they would share the message of life. There are stories happening in in places where we hear news of, of oppression happening and persecution happening in, in other lands and in other countries. And that as a result of this persecution and even martyrdom, that there are people coming to faith in Jesus Christ because they see the hope of these who go to the sword and die for Jesus. And they want that same hope that even in death, they know they will live. And it's in instances like that, it's in instances like this where they are released from prison. There is a great purpose. The purpose is that we would influence people with the message of life. What's the message of life? You remember in chapter 4, verse 12, David preached on this a couple weeks ago. It says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name, the name of Jesus under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's the message of life. That you and I are to herald. That you and I are to speak. I find this very interesting. We could, we could just move on and, and, and continue to talk about this. But, but look at verse 21. Look at verse 27. Look what happens because they're released. They go into the temple. They start teaching. But look at verse 21 In the middle, it says, Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. They returned, reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, Luke says, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came, reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain went along with the officers, proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest then questioned them. It's very interesting 
It's, it's almost like a, anybody in here remember Keystone Cops episodes? Anyone, anyone that little, have to, you have to be a little, have to have some age on you there. Um, like, but I remember them. I, I remember as a young kid, we used to get the film strips out. I mean, we used to have the kind of the, you know, students will kind of uh, let your parents talk about that later and what those are. So we'd get the film strips out and we, in our house, we'd watch Keystone Cops episode. And I, this week as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, that's what's going on here. The, these guys are bewildered by this. It's quite secured, Luke says. The prison's secured. The, the, the guards are there, but the apostles aren't there. It's an amazing picture of the power of God and that the plans of God will not be thwarted. You can't stop him. He's unstoppable. And they have tried to shut him up. They've put him on a cross. They, they put him in a grave. They put his apostles in prison. And here we've learned about Jesus. He cannot be stopped. He is going to do what he's going to do. He's an unstoppable force. And so look what happens in verse 28. The high priest spoke to Peter, the apostle, saying, We gave you strict orders. We, we told you not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem. I love this phrase. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. An intent to bring this man's blood upon us. They filled Jerusalem with the message of life. The message of salvation. Who's telling them that? The leaders are. Isn't that amazing? You've, you've done this. I'm sure the apostles are like, yes. <laughs> yes, praise God. Praise God that that's happening. Because that's the goal of the church. To fill the city with the message of life. Ephesians 1, 22 to 23. Remember what Paul said? Paul said that God has given subjection. He's given headship, leadership to Jesus over the church. The church, who is the body of Christ, is to be the fullness of God, filling all in all. And that's what's happening here. That the church, who is the embodiment of Jesus Christ, the fullness of Christ, as they hold out the message of life, they are filling the city of Jerusalem. But here's the question. How did they do that? How did they do that? And how do we do that? I would tell you that the answer is real simple here. Look at verse 29. We must obey God, is what he tells the leaders. We must obey God rather than man. How do we have such an influence, a spirit-empowered influence that holds out the message of life? It, it, it's simple obedience. The apostles were given commands. Acts 1.8, Jesus told them, give you the Holy Spirit, power will be upon you, you shall be my witnesses. They go and do that. They obey God. And obedience is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we see that here. That's what God wants for us. I've said this quote very often over the last few years, and I love it. Eugene Peterson says that what God wants from the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. And that's what we see with this church. That's what we see with the apostles. We're to obey God even in the face of civil powers who pressure us to disobey God. And Peter and John and the apostles, no matter what the cost was, even at jail or stoning or being put to the sword, they obey God. And what was the message of life that they shared? Real simply, as we wrap up this morning, I want you to see this. Because it's the heart of the gospel, but I want you to see the, the simplicity in the message. 
Because if you read verse 30 and 31, how long would it take you to read that? Pretty shortly, and probably pretty shortly to speak it, but listen to what it says. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. Real simply there, what are they telling the leaders? That God who created the world, God who called Abraham, Isaac, and Israel to be his people, this ever-living, this eternal God, he is the one who has raised up Jesus from the dead. The same Jesus who the apostle said, you, the religious leaders, you put him to death on a cross. You meant it to be a picture that this man on the cross was accursed by God because he was hung on a tree, as Deuteronomy 21 tells us, but God instead meant it for good, that Jesus would bear the curse of mankind. And so what did God do? He exalted Jesus by raising him up, showing his pleasure, his approval of who Jesus is by raising him from the dead. And then verse 31, he is the one, Jesus is, whom God exalted to his right hands as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Meaning God raised Jesus to reign. To reign as prince or a leader. To reign as savior. He raised Jesus to have supremacy over all things and that in him alone would be salvation. And that in Jesus alone, repentance would come. Forgiveness of sins would come. Because in Jesus, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he has lavished on us. And so by the grace of Jesus alone, we can experience the changed life going from death to life, from being enslaved to sin, guilt and shame. Now those sins, that guilt, that shame can be canceled out by the blood of Jesus Christ. He washes us clean and makes us white as snow, granting us forgiveness this is for Israel, he says, but this is for all. As Acts eleven eighteen says, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. Now, guys, there's two sentences there in verse 30 and 31 that probably take 30 seconds to share. God wants us to simply speak the truth of the gospel. And he wants it to go out and fill the city. This message. In verse 32, they simply say this as we wrap up. They say, we are witnesses of these things. They're eyewitnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The apostles have seen this. They've seen the death of Christ. They've seen the resurrection of Christ. He appeared to them for over 40 days. He ascended before their eyes, exalted to the right hand of God to reign truly as prince and savior. And they also say that the Holy Spirit is a witness of these things as well, giving evidence that Jesus truly is who he says he is, that he's the Messiah as that which has been prophesied through the Spirit. And what did the apostles see? The apostles saw that they were God's mouthpieces, used by the Holy Spirit to proclaim and testify the truth of Jesus to fill the city. The church, I want you to know today, that's our mission. Our mission as the church is to truly, as Jesus says through Paul, to be the fullness of God filling all in all. To fill the cities like these apostles do with the message of life. It will cost, there'll be prices with it. But what does Jesus want? He wants our simple obedience. He wants our obedience. Many times we can look at this text, we can look at verses like 12 through 16, and we can say, God, yes, I want that. Yes, I want that. 
We've got to be desperate for the power of God, but what does God most desperately want from his church? Obedience. Simple obedience. And then God will move and God will do the rest. He will bring the life change. He will bring the healing. He will bring the miracles. He simply wants his church to obey, even in the face of oppositions, that we would truly be the witnesses of Jesus. As we close this morning, as we pray, and may we think about our influence. What are we influencing people for? Are we influencing people with the kingdom of God? Are we influencing people with the message of life? You may be in here today and you might be saying, you know what, I don't know where to start. It's okay. Just start, right? You might be thinking, I, I don't know what to say. Hey, we just got two sentences right here. Good place to start. You might be fearful. Pray like the church did and ask God, God, give me confidence. You might be in a place where you just say, you know what, I, I really don't want to do that. Um, God doesn't want that refusal, that rejection. What have we seen today? He wants obedience. He wants obedience. That's what he desires. A simple obedience. Simple obedience. And so instead of being indifferent to the things of God, beginning Monday and, and Tuesday, and then when things really get ramped up Wednesday and Thursday, and then you're just looking for the weekend, and instead of indifference, look at your life. Look at what God has before you and take every opportunity to influence your different spheres, your different circles with the message of life. That's what God wants. Let's pray.